Thank you, Pastor. Wonderful to see you all here this evening. Trust you've had a good day. It has been a good day. But they're a quiet lot, aren't they, Pastor? Don't be shy. Don't take life so seriously. You won't get out of it alive. Uh, probably, unless the Lord returns. First John and chapter 4. It's pretty obvious our theme for this evening is the love of God. And uh, one of the most wonderful things I remember of the love of God when I got saved was uh, hearing the preaching of the gospel from Pastor Harold Davies. And uh, he painted a very, very black and ugly picture. I could say a black and ugly picture of me, but that would be too accurate. Of sin. And uh, one of the things that really stood out in my mind as I heard the gospel preached for the first time was that I was a sinner. I knew what a, what a wicked man I was, uh, a drunkard and a liar and a cheat and a lot of other things, but nobody ever told me in the sight of a holy God that I was a sinful man, that I was a, a sinner. And the very thought of it as this preacher was preaching really shook me. I guess we could say it scared me and there was a thought in my mind that at any moment God would open the floor of that little girl guide hall and I would step out into a Christless eternity. But as he was waxing eloquent of the sinfulness of man, he began to speak of the love of God and the greatness of God's love. And uh, it still delights and thrills my heart and soul to know that I heard then and there that God loved me. And I don't know how you feel about God's love for you, but I can assure you when I heard that God loved me, I was very, very much convinced that there was nothing about me that was lovable. And uh, they say beauty is only skin deep, but some of us are ugly right through to the bone. The truth is that in our sin, in our natural state, our sin has separated us from God. Our sin is an offence to him. Our sin grieves him. A uh, pastor has shared with me that they're preaching through the book of Genesis. And I find in Genesis and chapter 6 in the condemnation of the world before the flood in the time of Noah, the scripture says that it grieved God at his heart. It's been pointed out to me a number of times, only love can grieve. Only love knows what it really is to grieve for something that it's lost. God had lost man to man's sin, man's love of self, man's rebellion against God. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he hath loved us, provided a way of salvation. So we're going to look at the theme tonight of the love of God, beginning here in 1 John and chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 4 at verse 7. If you would follow along, please, as I read. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the opportunity to come into the house of God this evening, to draw aside from the rush and the busyness of the day, to bring, as it were, our needs before thee, knowing that we are a needy people, that you would open the storehouse of heaven tonight and pour out hope upon this people and this place in the proclamation of the gospel of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us, that one who bare our sins in his own body on the tree, the one who is coming again soon to receive us to himself, that where he is there, 
your children we may be also. Father, as we look at this theme of the love of God, may you stir and challenge hearts tonight. May your spirit move with liberty and with power in our midst. And may you receive all the glory for that which is done, for that which will be eternally uh, a blessing to us and bring glory and praise to you. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name with thanksgiving. Amen. I'm just looking for my little Aristotle of water here. I want you to notice here when I begin on this theme of God's love, something that came through in many of the songs that we sang tonight concerning God's love that the world doesn't really comprade. They don't understand this. Because the scripture makes it very clear, God in his very character and the person of God makes it very clear that God's love is pure. God's love is pure. Uh, some of you probably weren't even alive back in the mid-90s, but here in the fair old city of Sydney, uh, they have every year, in I think it's around about February, they have uh, what they call the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. It was once simply called the gay Mardi Gras, but then it went on to add this and... It won't be long until the banner will be so long it'll stretch from one end of Oxford Street to the other and no one will be able to read it. But uh, one of the great victories that the gay lobby has had by way of, can we say, promotional success was in, I think it was 1995. Every year the gay Mardi Gras has a theme. And uh, in 1995, if I recall correctly, one of the main themes they had was for the first time they had various government departments, fire brigade, police force, nursing agencies, the Australian Medical Association, doctors of all different standings, education departments at all the various levels from universities way down to the little rugrats and the kindergartens and the preschools. And, but they marched alongside 15 different religious organisations who marched under a rainbow banner that said, God is love. It in many ways became a turning point for the demands of the gay liberation movement, who for years had been trying to get God to somehow put his rubber stamp on their filthy lifestyle. And I make no apologies for that. They call it a gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. I call it the Festival of Filth. And uh, every time I come to Sydney that time of year, I'm reminded of uh, the wickedness of these people. Uh, back in the, in the late 70s and the early 80s, they used to call themselves the love that cannot speak. And now it's become the lust that won't shut up. Because every claim they make becomes a stick to beat moral people over the head for greater demands. And this I want to make very clear to you right at the outset tonight. When we talk about God's love, we're not talking about that which is profane, that which is godless, that which is selfish, that which is fleshly, that which is indulgent. We're talking about a love that at its very essence is holy and pure. God's love is pure. It's not tainted or corrupted by self. That love seeketh not its own, 1 Corinthians 13 would tell us. God is not seeking to minister to himself through his love. The greatness of God's love, uh, also there tempered with his mercy and his grace, over against his wrath and his justice, which we are rightfully deserving because we are lost, guilty, hell-deserving sinners and our sin has cut us off from God. We are deserving of wrath, but God, who is rich in mercy, reaches out through his Son, Jesus Christ, to save us and forgive us and cleanse us of our sin. Now, one of the prime motivators of that, that act of mercy of God toward us is his love for sinful men. And so we need to understand right at the get-go here, God's love is pure. Now notice here in this passage, I want you to see here uh, something else as well. It says here, in this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that the world might live through him. The word manifested here has the idea of openly displaying a proof of existence 
a proof text. It's like if you drive from Sydney down to Melbourne. Now, when I first started driving trips from North Queensland down to Victoria and across to South Australia, really a large portion of Australia is a no-man's land. It's not like driving in America. How many of you have ever been to America? Come on, confess your faults one to another. <laughs> but driving through America, every exit on an interstate is like a fast food city and a motel city and a restaurant city and a gas station city. And they're just like little towns that somebody sprinkled Burger Kings and Sizzlers and, and Lobster Caves and all these other little places there. And there was a heavy rain and they all just sprang up like little mushrooms and they're just everywhere. The thing is, as you're driving down the road, as you start to go past the billboards. And as the billboards pop up along the way, they begin to tell you there's, you know, 15 different restaurants here. There are 20 different motels here. There are a dozen different gas stations here. And you can just already, before you even find the exit, which is 20 miles down the road, exit number 11B at, you know, uh, Statesville, North Carolina, uh, and before you even get off, you can already figure out what you're going to have for lunch, where you're going to eat, where you're going to get your juice, where you're going to, everything else, where, where the bathrooms are. Everything's there ready for you. If you're tired, you want to crash, you know exactly which hotel change out and away you go. And, you know, the idea is you know what's there because they have openly displayed for you to see. If you're driving from Melbourne down to Sydney, it's rare, but it happens every now and again. You see this gigantic yellow M kind of like coming up on the horizon and you just know it's there. But if I was to say to you there are no McDonald's between here and Melbourne, you would say, well, well, that's not possible. I mean, how could you miss it? I mean, uh, see, I would be stating in ignorance such a thing because they have openly displayed, they have manifested their presence that they are there, they are available, they are ready, they are waiting, they're going to do the undertaker out of the job, come and eat our fast food, have a quarter pounder with double cheese and the, the old... The old embalmist, half of his work will be done for you. You'll, you'll just never waste away. So this is what's happened here. God's love is proven. The whole of the message of the gospel is a proof of God's love for sinful man. Now, one of the things that we do understand in our humanity is that it's one thing to love people who love you. I love my wife. I love my children. I love my grandchildren. I see grandchildren as a reward from God for not killing my own kids. And the, the temptation and the opportunity was there, but we, we, we let them live. And, and now, yeah. now, if you've got teenagers, I can help you. Don't feed them. Don't feed them. That'll stop them in their tracks. I mean, or if you need to feed them, lock them in a room with bars on it and throw a bale of hay in once a week. And, and that will sustain them. But otherwise, you're asking for trouble. If they get to their adult years, you may have just about made the grade. So here we have here this manifestation of God's love toward those who are unlovable. For you and I, it's easy to love people who are lovable. Brother Matthews is lovable. I've known this man for years. When I first met him, he had hair and it had colour. Now it's, anyway, don't worry, 20 years, don't laugh, <laughs> you're next. <laughs> but the reality is that God loves us when we are so sinful, when we are so rebellious, when we are so defiant. But he says yes, we say no. He says stop, we say go. He says it's black, we say it's white. He says it's red, we say it's green. We are constantly at war with God. And one of the purposes of Christ's coming was to pay the debt of my sin, your sin, our sin, and take that sin in his own body on the tree to take the sins of the whole world. And every now and again you'll hear some wannabe Bible scholars say that, you know, well, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. Now, there is a theological truth there, but there is another, there is another element to it that needs to be understood. 
Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is what? Condemned already. The Son of God came. You and I are under the sentence not merely of physical death, We are already spiritually dead. We're about to step out into the realm of eternal death and loss of of soul forever. To be totally forever separated from God. Now, keep this in mind. When you look at the cross of Calvary, when you consider the sufferings of Christ, remember that the scripture tells us in Romans chapter 8 that God spared not his own son. The fullness of God's wrath was poured out on his son when he made his soul an offering for sin, according to Isaiah 53. Remember that? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ on the cross is a sin bearer, a sin offering. Not a Jewish man at the River Jordan misunderstood it when John said, Behold the Lamb of God. They understood the concept of the lamb. They didn't believe it. They went through all the ritualism of it, but they didn't believe it, but that didn't make it void. It still is a great truth that Christ Jesus pays our sin. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we have God's love that is pure and we have it that it is proven. On the cross of Calvary where Jesus Christ bears our sin in his own body. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, Isaiah 53 tells us. The Lord sees the, the agony of his soul. Now imagine the fullness of God's wrath against sin is poured out on Jesus Christ. God spared not. What does that mean? In layman's language, God did not hold back. God did not say, I'll go easy on you because you're my son. You're God the son. You're God come in the flesh. You are the perfect man. You are the eternal God the son. You have always been God. You always will be God. But now you are a sin bearer. You are a sin offering. You are sin. But I'll hold back. I won't go too hard on you. No, 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 no. From the moment Christ was taken by wicked hands in the garden, the sufferings of the Son of God began. And on that cross, God did not relent, no, not one ounce of his wrath against man's sin. Now, with that in mind, you think to yourself, what does God have in store for those who refuse his Son? He will not hold back. He will not let up. He will not let go. He will not excuse. He will not wink at it. He will not turn the head from it. He will pour out the fullness of his wrath and his indignation because you have rejected the Son and the promise of God is he that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God. When people talk about dying in their sin and going to hell, you need to understand that is the wrath of God. And it begins the moment a person steps out of this life into eternity. You are a heartbeat away, my friend. If you do not know Jesus Christ, your Savior, you are a heartbeat away from tasting the fullness of the wrath of God. And it will be unending. Your misery will be totally unproportionate to anything you've ever suffered in this world. Totally incomprehensible. To be lost in the blackness of darkness where the fire is not quenched and where the worm dieth not forever. Oh, we sometimes try and comfort ourselves with, with things. You know, we, we see an accident where, you know, maybe uh, a dozen people are all killed together in a terrible accident and they say, these poor six people died together. No, they didn't die together. They died at the same time, perhaps. You die, my friend, you die alone. And you stay alone. 
Oh, the stupid things we used to say before I knew Christ the Saviour. Oh, the shame that we used to talk about when we get to hell, we're going to light that place up. We're going to roll out the keg and, and you know, we're going to, oh, it's going to be a great old time. What a load of drunken rubbish. The mouth of fools pouring forth foolishness. There's a scripture for you. Next time somebody starts telling you a bunch of nonsense about God and the Bible, tell them that's actually in the scripture, you know. They say, really? Yeah, you're actually you're quoting a verse from the Bible. You're actually being biblical. Really? Am I? Yes. There's a mouth of fools pour forth foolishness. You're talking a load of rubbish. I pray God won't slap the stupidity out of you before you die. Now, God's love is pure. God's love is proven. Do you notice here in Galatians in chapter 2, we find that God's love is personal. You know, we can make references from, uh, from the book of Romans concerning the greatness of God's love. Now, Paul tells us there in Romans 4 of Christ's sacrifice that he was delivered for our offences and raised again for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. But oftentimes when Paul is writing by the Spirit of God as the Scripture is written, he speaks of the salvation and the love of God in a very general sense. We might almost say in a universal sense because he's, he's telling everybody as in God so loved the world. But in Galatians chapter 2, he gets very personal. He tells us that God's love is personal. In Galatians in chapter 2 and in verse 20, he says... I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's not talking about the Galatians anymore. The letter is written to the churches of Galatia, multitudes of them who have lost their way, got caught up in false teaching, false doctrine. Many of them have now turned their back on the grace of God to seek to try and please God by the deeds of the law, and you know, which could never please God. But here Paul's not talking about the Galatians anymore. He's not talking about the Philippians or the Colossians or the Thessalonians. Paul's talking about Paul. Paul's talking about his own life and he says, the Son of God who loved me. What do you know about the Apostle Paul? Was he not at the feet of the master Gamaliel? Historically, many would tell us that Gamaliel ascends to the rule of being the, the master of Israel because this other guy that was around before him, some fellow named Nicodemus, seemed to nick off. I mean, after he identified with Christ at the, at the, after the crucifixion and with the burial of Christ, I mean, he's, he's on the nose to everybody. But this Gamaliel, oh... Who's his prize student? Saul of Tarsus. Saul's going to one day be the master. He's the one that the teachers go to for their insights and instructions. The teacher's teacher. And then he gets saved. But before he was saved, hailing men and women, butchering families, seeing them sentenced to death for their transgression, for their blasphemy of the law of the Lord by his interpretation. And he's guilty. And in First and Second Timothy, he acknowledged it, that he was before injurious. What's injurious? Cruel, hateful, spiteful, mean-spirited, Anyone that didn't see eye to eye and agree with Paul, they didn't dot their I's and cross their T's just the way he said, they were a marked man. Now here he is. Do you understand that the Son of God loved the Apostle Paul even when he was still in his sin? 
It's one of the things that always strikes a chord with me. God didn't love us when we said, oh, this is terrible, this sin, it's horrible, it's ruining my life, it gives me sleepless nights. I mean, you know, I've lost count of the hangovers, I've lost count of the, the friends I've lost because of my bad moods and my foul temper, and I've lost times of the number of times my mother's had tears in her eyes because of the way I've behaved myself. And, and you know, I just said, God, you know, I'm really sick of sin. And God says, all right, now I'll love you. He didn't. God loved you and I when we were up to our eyeballs in sin. When this little black duck was up to his eyeballs in sin and loving it, God so loved. And when the Apostle Paul was there uh, slaying, seeing to the execution of a young man named Stephen for simply preaching the truth, they laid their garments at the feet of a man named Saul. And he's just two chapters away from his own Damascus Road experience, from his own conversion to meet the risen Lord of glory. God's love is pure. It is proven. It is personal. We could see in the book of Ephesians, if we look there for a moment, that God's love is uh, permanent, that it passes understanding. In Romans chapter 8, in Romans chapter 8, and this is a passage of scripture that is very uh, precious to me. In Romans in chapter 8, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 33 says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love is permanent. Once you have entered into the realm of God's love as a repentant sinner believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in his hand. In John chapter 10, the Lord Jesus says, And I give unto them eternal life, and, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I went through a very difficult experience as a young Christian. The church that I was attending was having an extraneous meeting. Some people in the church weren't happy with the pastor and things that were being done or not being done. Some people think that the pastor ought to be just like a little lapdog and he just does whatever you want him to do. Uh, pastor Davies uh, was a gracious and caring shepherd. He guarded the pulpit. He refused to allow just any bod just to come up and speak in his pulpit. To him, it was a, a, a commission, a stewardship from God that was to be guarded very, very carefully. We could even use the word even jealously. But some people didn't want him to be pastor anymore. As I attended this meeting, these people are like family to me now. My own family's drop kicked me out the door. I've turned my back and I've left all my old buddies and friends behind. I'm living miles from my hometown. I'm going backwards and forwards to a church that's not even in my hometown anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm all at sea. These people are very precious to me. And to see them bickering and fighting and, and accusing, it, it was painful. But at the end of it, the pastor got up and walked to the front and just said, does anyone else have anything to say? <clears throat> now I've got something to say <laughs> and in language that was more fitting of a barroom brawl I got up and told everybody what a bunch of rat bags they were and how much I hated them and what a bunch of hypocrites and, and, and you know, I mean language that would make the devil blush and then I stormed out the door you know when we get in the flesh we don't think 
We don't think. We don't weigh up consequences. I didn't have a car. I'm 30 miles from home. It's pouring rain and I've just walked out the door. It's a mile and a half to the highway. So I'm out on the highway for an hour hitching a ride to get home. And God blessed us with rain that just went all the way home. And when I got out of the truck at the turn off to Newborough, I walked up over the hill and down the road, and I'm, you know, steam coming out the back of my neck. The, the weather was fueling the fury. And I'm, I'm just angry. And I think if anybody had crossed my path and said good day, I probably would have choked the life out of them. But I'm walking down, and they're waiting at the end of the driveway at my little house there, my little apartment, was Harold Davies. And his old black Ford with the wipers going. Flap, flap, flap. And the moment I saw him, I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just feeling so ashamed of, of what I've done and what I've said. Seriously, people won't, they need to look up what some of those words mean. And he gets out of the car and the flesh rose up and I remember looking at him and saying, I'm not coming back. I'm not coming back. And I'm muttering away. And he just put his hands up and he said, I didn't come to ask you to come back. I didn't come to call you to come back. And I said, Pastor, I'm sorry, I'll come back. <laughs> I was so ashamed. But he came, he put his arm around me, went inside, and he just said, look, I didn't come to ask you to come back. And that shocked me. And I was very apologetic, and he said, no, no, no. He said, look, I'm sorry you had to see that today. He said, I'm sorry, sometimes God's people, we don't belong, we don't behave the way we should. We don't treat each other the way we should. And I'm sorry that. He said, I just want you to know, I believe you meant it when you trusted Christ back in February. And this is like four months down the road. So I'm still a little baby Christian praying about, you know, what God wants me to do in life. He said, I just want you to know that no matter where you go, no matter what you do, you will always belong to the Lord. People can take a lot of things from you in this life. They can never take Christ from you. Ever. And then he opened up his old Bible and he read this passage of scripture that we just read from Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. It's permanent. It's fixed. Nothing I've ever done would make God love me more. Nothing you and I have ever done will make him love us less. God's love is a constant. That's why the scripture can actually say God is love because God is constantly loving his people. God is constantly still loving sinful man. That's why the doors of the gospel invitation are open to sinners far and wide, young and old, rich and poor, to come to know Jesus Christ as Saviour. That's why God allows us to continue to preach the gospel. Once we know Christ, it's fixed and it's settled. We're over here in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. Up to this point, we could really say that we're trying to direct our attention toward that person or persons that do not know Jesus Christ as their saviour because the simple testimony of the scripture is that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That God wants to give you and forgive you and, and change your life. God is offering you through his Son a wonderful message of hope that is eternal hope, that is everlasting hope and the gift of everlasting life. To flee from the sentence of death and wrath from God to the place of eternal joy and peace with God. So that the war with God is over. But now we come to a turning point here where we're not so much addressing people who do not know Christ, but people who do know Christ. See, Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians and says this, For the love of Christ, in verse 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because with us judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So here we have this, this uh, matter of 
What is it that moves you? What is it that motivates you? What is it that challenges you, that, 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 that drives you on? For the Christian, the motivation has to be the love of Christ. The understanding of the greatness of his love for me as a lost sinful man. The understanding of the greatness of his love in his forgiveness toward me and the washing and the cleansing away of my sin. All because he by the grace of God has tasted death for every man. And now I am free from the bondage and the sentence of sin. How should I then live? Well, it tells us here that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. So for the Christian life, it becomes a question, for whom are you living? You see, all through our lives as children of God, everything we do is being evaluated by the King of Glory. The Son of God will one day be seated on his judgment seat, not the great white throne, that's for the lost, that's for the unsaved, but for the children of God. One day they will stand before the beamer seat, the judgment seat of Christ. It's there in verse 10 as well of this passage of Scripture uh, where he says, uh, let me see, in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. That's why he goes and say, knowing the terror of the Lord. Imagine that, I'm going to stand before Christ one day and I'm going to give account for the life I've lived that he is supposedly empowering. Am I empowered of God or am I empowered of self? When I do those things that are after the flesh, when I do sinful things, when I do fleshly things, these are the things that are not acceptable nor pleasing to him. But when I do things in obedience to the Spirit of God, to the Word of God, for the glory of God, these are what the judgment seat of Christ says. This is the gold, silver and the precious stones. The things of the flesh, that's the wood, the hay and the stubble. Now every one of us will one day stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Now we don't have Krakenite here anymore. but We used to have Krakenite when I was a kid. We had it in July. I've actually been asked that in universities that I've been and spoken at in the United States, I've actually had university students, do you have a 4th of July in Australia? And I say, yeah, we have a 4th of January and a 4th of February. And a 4th, but, we, uh, but we used to have a Guy Fawkes night. Most of you young people wouldn't know. You know what Guy Fawkes night? Some of us think he might have been onto something. He wanted to blow up the parliament or something. But, uh, uh, our parliament, oh, mercy. Uh, did you have a good vote today? Did you did you enjoy yourself? Did you get a did you get a snag at the at the queue? Yeah. Yeah, don't think it was worth the price of admission. But anyway, so we would have we would have the end of the football season in mid September, and then the cricket didn't start until the end of November. So in the weeks leading up to Guy Fawkes Night, every afternoon we're going out of town and we're bringing back tea tree and gum trees and bits and stuff and we're building we've got a big median strip over the back from our house and it's probably three times the width of the hall here big median strip with the road running down and all the kids in the neighborhood we're all laboring together and we're all building this monstrous bonfire that would be bigger than this higher than this building and we've got this stuffed paper man sitting in the top in a chair up the top and you know but it's kind of like a war I mean, we're digging foxholes everywhere and we've got our, our bicycle pumps and our penny rockets and we're shooting marbles and sky rockets at each other and we go down to the local dam, we'd bring home boxes of clay in the back of the billy cart and we'd make our own homemade hand grenades. Got the old penny bungers and the tuppenny bungers. Yeah, you remember, you probably did this too. You know, you, how many letter boxes did you blow up? You know, anyway, we'd go down and, and it was just a, it was a wonderful time. You know, it was a, it was a neighbourhood time. Nobody got killed. People usually got hurt, but you know that could happen at football. That can happen at cricket. It can happen at tennis or squash. It can happen at golf. I mean, you know, you can. You, I got hurt just trying to get out of my chair this evening. So, I mean, it can happen anywhere. But anyway, so, but at the end of the night, it was a very special time when the bonfire had burned right down. That was the end of it. 
and the mums would come together and have this big tray of potatoes. And they'd come over and they'd put these potatoes, they'd rake over all the coals, they had the red hot coals, and they'd put all the potatoes in the coals and they'd bury them. And, you know, then we'd all be sitting around while the potatoes were getting turned black as the ace of spades, black as a charcoal, you know. And uh, we'd all be sitting around and the dads would all take turns telling stories for when they were kids and, and the stuff they did. And then it was time they'd rake away the coals and they'd bring out these, and they're just black, just charcoal. But you bust these things up, smother them in butter and salt and just, you know, no knives and forks, you know. Juggling the old, it's a bit like the Wiggles, hot potato, hot potato. You're juggling these things, uh, you know, a bit of hot coal on it. You know, <laughs> just a wonderful time. But, yeah, but this was the end of the night when all the fire was gone. And one particular year, it seemed like it rained from July right through. This is Victoria, by the way. It seemed like it rained every day for months. And we came to Guy Fawkes night and nothing would burn. Everything was totally saturated. They're sticking in pieces of new paper and they're lighting them and the paper just burned up and nothing. One of the guys, his name was Jelly Campbell. Jelly's dad had an earth-moving business. And Jelly got, Jelly's dad and one of his mates went over and they got this 44-gallon drum that had been cut in half like a giant bucket. See this thing with big old steel cables over it? And it's full of thinners and stuff that he uses to wash down his dozer parts. And so they come over and they start walking around the bonfire. He's got this old jam tin and he's throwing this stuff all over the bonfire. And as he's going around and the smell, the fumes are starting to fill the air. But I still remember him. I'm, I'm like 13 years old and all you can hear him say is, get him back. Get them back. And everyone, you know, the ladies are moving all their chairs back. And, and he'd come around again, get them back. You know, and everyone's moving back further and further away. And, you know, and just the stench of the fumes of the diesel and thinners mixture that he had just absolutely filled the air. And I remember, I'm just a kid standing there, you know, got my bag of crackers and I've got my, my little foxhole over there. And, you know, once the fire starts, we go on the wall. And he flicked a match. I remember, I still see it so clear. Flicked this match and it tumbled through the air. And folks, listen, the ground shook. It was like, phew! Louder than that, there was just this, this ear-shattering thud. And the ground shook. And it was potato time. <laughs> Not a shot's been fired. Everybody's looking at one another. The ladies aren't ready to get potatoes yet. I mean, as funny as it sounds, you know, at the judgment seat of Christ, that's what a lot of people have got to look forward to. Just a bunch of coal and ash. No reward. No well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's a tragedy that Jesus Christ gives his life to give us life. And more than that, he says, I am come that might have life and have it more abundantly. And what do we do with it? We trust Jesus Christ as our saviour. We believe on him. We believe that he died for our sin, that he was buried, that he rose again. That's the gospel. We believe that Christ and Christ alone. But you know, before we came to Christ, we had all these plans and all these dreams, we had all these ideas, all these schemes that we've been working on for years. We've got our little school bunnies. We've got a little program. We've got a little house in the out by a river somewhere. Our little farm in the country somewhere. We've got all the, We've got the car we're going to own, and we've got all these things. Oh, blah 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 blah. And when we come to Christ, all we do is just keep on going down the same old road. We skipped a beat to come to Christ. And then just went right on down that same old selfish road. And he gives us everything and gets nothing. That seems to be the condition of just about every Bible-believing local church that I've ever been in. Multitudes of people who have never asked the question, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? 
What do you want me to do with this life? For I'm dead. The script says you're dead and your life is hid in Christ. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear. What does it say here? That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. I was at a young adults conference a few years back. Uh, we had, I think, 60 or 70 young adults there. And I asked the question, I said, how many of you young people are in university or finishing high school and going to university? And all these hands went up. I said, how many of you can honestly say you asked God? You asked the Lord, Lord, is it your will for me to go to university? Is it your will? As I said to the men this morning, there's nothing wrong with being a, you know, a doctor or a, or a painter or a plumber or a teacher or a nurse. Nothing wrong with any of that. If that's what God wants you to do with his life that he gave you. But very few ever stop to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Are you one of those? Are you looking forward to potato time? No, you're not. The judgment seat of Christ for many people will be a time of great anguish. As the hymn writer said, by and by, I wish I had served him more. Remember in chapel one day, one of our missionary teachers that was there, Brother Steve Wivell, got up and sang the song, Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Saviour so? What a sad, sad testimony that I come before the Lord and I have nothing to bring. I haven't witnessed, I haven't prayed, I haven't lived for him, I haven't served him. I'm going to heaven, praise God, saved, trusting the blood. That they which live, the love of Christ constraineth us. Now over here in chapter 8, and we'll finish here, in chapter 8, We need to understand that at the end of the day, the love of Christ for his people and the love of God in our lives is not just is it pure, not just is it proven or personal or permanent, or as we should say there in 2 Corinthians 5, provocative. It ought to stir you, it ought to motivate you. But we need to know that it is a pattern. According to John 13, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. But here in 2 Corinthians in chapter 8, the Apostle Paul addresses a problem in the church at Corinth. Now, the history behind the passage would seem to be that the church at Corinth were the ones who very likely came up with this idea of gathering an offering for the suffering saints at Jerusalem. It's wonderful when people come up with good ideas to help God's people to assist in the work of God. The problem was, it seems from this passage, everybody else got the vision except the people that started it. And now a year on, the Apostle Paul writes and says, now you began a year ago, but you still haven't done it. He says here that in verse 8, I speak not by commandment, but the occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And here I give my advice, for it is expedient for you who have begun before not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago, now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to the man hath, and not according to that he hath not. What does all that mean? Paul says, I'm not asking you to do something you cannot do. If we talk in the context of giving and a sacrificial giving, he says, I'm not asking you to give something you haven't got. In fact, at the beginning of this passage, he makes reference to the Macedonians who out of their deep poverty first gave themselves. Wow. You've seen poverty. Shane's seen poverty. 
Some of you have been places in the world where you've seen poverty, but have you seen deep poverty? That's different. And these people, these Macedonian Christians, they were seriously struggling, savagely persecuted. They've lost everything. But they could still give. And so Paul says to these people now, there needs to be a proof of the sincerity of your love. And this is where it gets practical. Practical. You see, it becomes a time where you and I have to be a doing people, not just a hearing people. But be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own self. I went through a very deep trial as a, as a young preacher back in the year 2000. So I always say I was a young preacher because it was 20-something years ago. My brother's wife committed suicide. It was a very difficult time for the family, lost family, and I was asked to do the funeral. And it wasn't just the funeral. It was a lot of time sitting down talking with sons and daughters, nieces, nephews, in-laws, outlaws, whatever else, and a lot of angry people, some very staunch religious people that if you committed suicide, you've committed this horrible sin, then you can, you, you're just lost forever. And dealing with all this stuff, hours and hours talking with people. Angry people are very hard to try and be patient and gentle with. The temptation is to mount your horse, draw your sword and just lop off their head. That'll shut them up. It doesn't always work that way. After the funeral, I was driving back to Melbourne and I pulled over the side of the road and I just burst into tears. And I just cried and I cried. Finally got myself together, got back behind the wheel, got back to Pastor Davy's house, sat down in the lounge, and the moment he said, how did it go, I just burst into tears. Just cried. At the airport, I started crying. On the plane, I started crying. When I got home, my wife said, how did it go, and I'm crying. I'd be sitting at the dinner table and the tears would just start to roll down my cheeks. I'd be sitting at the computer trying to write something and the tears went... And this went on for some weeks. And I went to my pastor. I said, Brother Wall, I think I'm coming unglued. You know, I, I, he said, yeah, well, you, know, you need to get into your scripture, read your Psalms, you know, uh, pick up some of your biographies, read those biographies about you know, Adam Rhyme Judson and Anne Hazelton Judson and the, the struggles they went through and how they rested in the Lord and trusted in the Lord brought them through those deep times of, of you know, the fires of affliction. And one day I was sitting at my computer and the phone rang. And I'm feeling a bit weepy and all of a sudden I picked up the phone and it was a family in South Australia. And they rang up and the first thing I hear is this yobbo voice on the end of it says, Hey brother Chris, how are you going? And I'm thinking, how am I going? He said, we're just having family devotions and he said, you're on the list for us to pray. And we thought instead of praying for you today, we'd ring up and say, what do you really need? How can we best pray for you? And I just remember putting the phone aside on speaker and saying, Mick, you have no idea how timely this is. And I just poured my heart out to a brother in the Lord and his family all listening in about how I was really struggling. I don't know that my sister-in-law was saved. I just knew, you know, the, the cruel turns in life that had left her in such despair that she just ended her own life. It was, it was hard. We prayed together on the phone and the tears stopped. The heartache was still there. The heaviness on my heart and mind was still there, but the tears stopped. And I say that because if you're a Christian here tonight, you know Christ, you know someone who's not here, could be, should be, but they're not. And maybe they haven't been, for a couple of weeks or even a couple of months. And you don't know why, but it should be on your heart to say, I need to reach out to this person. So you have a phone or you have a computer. You can send an email. You want to be a blessing to your missionaries? 
Don't send them a big long email unloading all the things. That oh, you know, Australia's a mess, you know. We've got this government, we've got that government, we've got this old dragon at the Reserve Bank, we've got this, and, we are, and the price of petrol. Let me tell you about the price of petrol. Oh, pro- I mean, I went shopping last week, and, you know, my bill is almost double. It's got me $3,000 just to buy a packet of cornflakes for the kids, and they're going to eat it all in one day. <laughs> just rhymes, hey, listen, I want you to know we love you and we're praying for you. If you have a moment, can you send us a couple of prayer requests? Can you send us the names of a couple of people that you're, you know, maybe you've been witnessing to and they're on that threshold of making decisions for Christ? You got an oven? Make some cookies. Bake a cake. You know, somebody who's struggling at home, maybe they're laid up from work and they've been put off or whatever it is. And, and you, you, be practical. Praying is prayer, but praying without practice is pretty empty. If we really love and care for one another, we need to become practical in our care for one another. That's what Paul was graciously, but definitely correcting. Can we say chiding? Maybe not quite rebuking, but challenging these Christians to make a foolproof of their love. Don't just talk about it. Show me. The old cliche says, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians today are known to be not caring. It's so easy for us to walk right on by people, to ignore the neighbours, to see the needs, to be aware of them, And we're so spiritual to bring these things to the throne of grace, but never to pick up a phone or send a letter or knock a door or cook a meal or bake a cake. Practical. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. Don't you love that hymn that says, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. But do we love? Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time in the Word this evening. Thank you for the quiet, patient attention of each one here tonight. Thank you for the liberty we have to preach the gospel to seek to exalt the name and the person and the work of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the precious blood that was shed for us, for the sins of the whole world, that you gave yourself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, that you suffered the just for the unjust. Lord, we're so thankful for your great love for us to allow us to know Christ to be set free from the penalty of sin and ultimately even from the very power and the presence of sin to know the wonderful plans you have for us plans of peace and blessing eternal plans of a home in heaven to rejoice before the throne of God to praise and thank you forevermore for all that thou hast done for us. For you are worthy and we are not. We have so much to be thankful for. Lord, I pray tonight that you might speak to that heart that is here not knowing the Saviour, that if there be even one here this night that does not know where they'll spend eternity, does not have that assurance of knowing Christ, And in knowing Christ, knowing their sins are forgiven, knowing that you will not deal with them after their sin, nor reward them according to their iniquity, because of the greatness of your love and your mercy when we know Christ as Saviour, the one who was in the world. The world was made by him and the world knew him not. The one who came unto his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him. To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Lord, I pray for that one without Christ tonight, that you would touch that heart, that they would not go away lost, but rather they would come and trust Christ as Saviour.
that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And Lord, I pray that you would challenge your own people tonight. The night is still young and the opportunities to reach out to people are manifold. I pray that you would allow the love of Christ to stir and challenge your people to be reaching out to others, others who are hurting, others who are discouraged, others who are broken, others who are overwhelmed and overcome of sin, others who are feeling totally unloved and rejected, perhaps even feeling like God himself has failed them. They need someone to reach out to them and in the love of Christ minister to them. Lord, I pray you'd have your will and your way with each one as we seek your face tonight. In Christ's name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you.